You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. In today's episode, I welcome David Bentley Hart to respond to concerns recently raised by Father James Dominic Rooney. Father Rooney is a Dominican friar of the province of St. Albert the Great and an assistant professor in the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Hong Kong Baptist University. He's recently published two articles in the Catholic journal Church Life, the first entitled The Incoherencies of Hard Universalism, and the second entitled Hell and the Coherence of Christian Hope. According to Father Rooney, the Church is today facing what he calls big-time heresies within the modern universalist movement, heresies which he is concerned will lead to denying central tenets of Christianity. Father Rooney believes Christian universalism, especially when put in the form that God must necessarily save all, undermines the cross, undermines why Jesus had to die for us, and that all of this ultimately undermines Christianity itself. On today's podcast, I'm pleased to have Dr. David Bentley Hart to respond to Father Rooney's concerns because some of Dr. Hart's theological positions are centrally critiqued by Father Rooney. My characterization of Father Rooney's positions is taken from an interview Rooney recently gave entitled Hell and Universalism with Swan Sana on his YouTube channel Intellectual Catholicism. Dr. David Bentley Hart, welcome back to the Gray Saves All podcast. Hello. How are you? I am well. Well, Dr. Hart, I'll begin by setting the stage. Father Rooney claims that Catholicism has not that long ago condemned the necessity of all being saved after a resurgence of this way of believing was made among some Catholic theologians in the 1970s. In that period, views developed that it was impossible to actually commit a mortal sin, which could actually lead to an eternal separation from God in hell. The rationale for the impossibility of mortal sin was the claim that no one could ever actually achieve the qualification of having achieved the full knowledge to do so. This was called fundamental option theory, and Rooney says this view was condemned in Veritatis Splendor, a 1992 writing by Pope John Paul II, wherein the Pope clarified that it is in fact possible to commit a mortal sin. And then according to Rooney, There was also a synod of bishops in 1992 that condemned the idea that there is no possible hell, and further that the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which works to clarify Catholic teaching, issued a document condemning universalism again. Even further, Father Rooney is an OP, an abbreviation for the Dominican Order, which was founded in 1216 in order to preach the gospel and oppose heresy. And when he refers to the CDF issuing something against universalism, That's the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, formerly known as the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Roman and Universal Inquisition. And the current head of the CDF, Archbishop Ladaria, has made his own views on universalism clear in a recent book where he wrote, The possibility of damnation above all for oneself is always before us. Apocatastasis is not compatible with the Christian message of salvation, simply because it distorts the message, stripping it of all meaning and significance. It makes automatic what should be the free response of love to the love of God, which offers to us in Christ and in his spirit participation in the divine life. So if the head of the CDF, 
Archbishop Ladaria has this opinion. I can see why Father Rooney, as a Dominican, might be so determined to say that the Catholic tradition opposes any kind of necessity in salvation, either on God's side or on the human side. So to start off, Dr. Hart, do you have any comment about Father Rooney's claims that any kind of necessary universal salvation is not possible for Catholic Christians specifically? Uh, no, I'm totally indifferent to the question. I have plenty of uh, Catholic theologian and scholar friends who've made the opposite argument and can do so with considerable cogency, but it's not a matter of any interest to me. I'm not a Catholic, and I don't care what the Catholic teaching is on this matter, and I don't think Catholics should either, <laughs> but that's that's not for me to say. The Ladaria material, however, I, I, I am familiar with, and all I can do is say that the arguments there are on the one hand quite fatuous. Uh, they, they don't actually address any of the classical traditions or any of the, uh, the solvent arguments of the universalist tradition, so they have no force in and of themselves. Moreover, neither does Veritatis Splendor state things nearly as unequivocally as, as Rooney claims, nor does an encyclical have doctrinal authority, even if it has magisterial authority for Catholics. But in the end, I wouldn't care if the Roman Catholic Church definitively, doctrinally declared uh, epicatastasis to be a rank heresy, because I, obviously not being a Catholic, count its authority as nil. Uh, it's just another communion within the communion of, of churches, all of which have believed some rather dreadful and stupid things over the centuries. The issue is whether or not the arguments, the actual arguments that, that uh, the great universalist church fathers and their successors made can be cogently answered by people like Rooney, who have a different view, and so far the uh, the results uh, have been very much in the negative in that regard. Uh, Dominic spent a great deal of time, both in those uh, articles you mentioned in Church Life Journal and in subsequent engagements in social media, trying to defend his position, only to lapse again and again and again into greater incoherence, and ultimately a reliance on rather truculent accusations of heresy, and, to, to be honest, just a, a retreat to paradox, stating things that about the nature of God that would, by any reasonable assessment, make God out to be pure evil, and then claiming that they were proofs of a, of a transcendent goodness beyond our understanding. I don't find any of that compelling. Uh, I did find it rather depressing after a while, so I have to admit that I, I stopped paying attention to the debates about two weeks in. One of the things that I saw in relation to this is that uh, Justin Sean Coyle has an interesting article at Al Kimmel's site, Eclectic Orthodoxy, titled, Can Catholics Be Universalists? He yeah. makes a and good case. Let, let me interrupt before you go on. I know you're about to summarize. I'll let you, uh, Coyle is a, is a very serious thinker, and um, he's one of those Catholics I was just mentioning who are able to make, if, if not absolutely persuasive, then definitely very compelling arguments to the contrary regarding the latitude of Catholic tradition on this and the uh, 
and the contents of of, of Catholic claims. I, I will point out that, um, among other things, uh, I, I should have said this at, at, at the start, Rooney has a habit of insinuating again and again that the universalist tradition simply denies the existence of a hell, right? Or the reality of the experience of hell. And as you well know, that's that's not true. The question has always been, to what end? And <laughs> whether we're talking about something everlasting in a consecutive sense or in an ultimate sense. Anyway, I'll let you go on. Yes, you were about to mention Justin uh, Coyle, uh, Sean, Justin, Justin, Sean, Sean, Justin Coyle's article. Well, I, I thought that he made an interesting argument there that doctrinal development on matters which may seem settled is actually part of the Catholic tradition. So maybe tradition isn't as static as Father Rooney might have us believe. Well, remember the way this works. Authority, when you want authority, for if this, is, this is true of many, especially I find among Thomists, uh, the degree of authority that they accord any particular statement of belief or faith on the part of, of the hierarchy is always entirely in keeping with their own special interests. You know, again, as I pointed out, it really doesn't matter what Ladaria thinks. It doesn't matter what an encyclical says on these matters, without, except within a very limited understanding of magisterial authority, uh, because encyclicals uh, in the past have regularly contained material that was more or less explicitly rejected later. The, the, the issue entirely comes down to doctrinal determinations. There have been no church councils. There have been no doctrinal statements made on this issue that are definitive. I can tell you that. Uh, so the claim that this is a matter of fixed, firm, and unalterable Catholic doctrine is simply a false statement. But you see, I don't even want to get into that argument in any great depth because I don't really feel that I should pretend to have an interest in that issue. I don't believe in the power of of Rome to declare fixed, firm, and immutable doctrine under any circumstances. But uh, you know, I don't even acknowledge that there have been any church councils since the seventh. Uh, and the records of some of those councils, most notably the fifth, we know to have been corrupted, and corrupted on specifically this issue. Uh, so, you know, the, the claims made for the doctrinal determinations of the Catholic Church that, that, that uh, Rooney put such emphasis on are simply false claims. But even if they were true claims, they would leave me unmoved. Next, according to Rooney, the state of eternal separation does not involve cessation of being for the damned. However, even though the damned go about their rebellion forever, Father Rooney rejects eternal conscious torment as a moniker for this state because he says God does nothing to torment anyone. Rooney understands the Orthodox Catholic doctrine of hell as simply the state of persisting in mortal sin forever. One does something to cause the lack of grace, and then they want something other than God forever causing them the pain of the worm of conscience. God doesn't predestinate. Do, do, do we have to go on with this rubbish? I mean, I'm sorry, but that, that's just the worst kind of, of casuistry, the worst kind of, of double think and double talk. 
we're talking about an eternal state of unhappiness. And to say that it's not imposed by God, though everything is in the terms that God sets in, in, in the constitution of creation, God allows it to happen, though by Rooney's own admission he has the power so to arrange things that all come to a knowledge of God, uh, which, by the way, he does uh, acknowledge. I don't know, should make that clear. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's simply gibberish. You can claim that, that somehow God washes, you know, God is in no way complicit in the suffering of the dams, though he is the omnipotent source of all being and all reality. Uh, and, and it is by his will that those who persist in being persist in being, and with his full knowledge of the irreconcilability of their desires. First of all, I mean, obviously, as you know, I believe this notion of an infinite free rejection of God is incoherent at base. It's, is based on a libertarian model of freedom that is meaningless, uh, philosophically incoherent from the start. But even if it were true, even if it were true, I mean, even the, the uh, that God were to allow us to remain, and this would mean remaining to some significant degree in ignorance of our own true good end, and uh, the, uh, the real happiness that our nature ceaselessly seeks. It would be an act of dereliction that would be exactly the same as, since he's the creator of all things, exactly the same as the willful and sadistic imposition of suffering upon a helpless being, a helpless creature for eternity. The God that Rooney is describing there is, if anything, more evil because, because his intentions have about them the quality of deep indifference uh, at least a sadistic God would have enough uh, psychological, uh, so to speak, psychological warrant for his disgusting behavior. Well, I noticed that in Father Rooney's response, he says, it is we who do something to cause the lack of grace. And I yeah, thought, right. well, the very first thing that we do to be in a state lacking grace, according to his theology, is just to be born. Right. I mean, that's the, the uh, <laughs> you know, if, Look, everything he's saying, you, you can say he's sincere. Everything he's saying is based on a refusal to acknowledge the contents of the doctrines he's defending. Very simply, he's a Thomist. Now, he's an eccentric Thomist because he tries to unite Thomas's clearly intellectualist model of freedom to a kind of libertarianism that Thomas most definitely did not teach, would not even have known how to teach in the 13th century. But Putting that to one side, what basically the, the Thomistic teaching is, is that all of us, by virtue of being born in a state of separation from God, are incapable, absolutely incapable, of doing anything to ameliorate our condition with regard. Now, there's a question in Thomistic tradition as to whether before there's the conscious agency of sin one can merit hell as opposed to the limbus infantium, say. But that's all a rather recherche point and one based on texts that Thomas himself probably had no hand in. The issue for, for Thomism is that we are born already damned. We are a massa damnanda, or massa damnata, to be honest. It's already uh, a fait accompli. If God wishes, certain of us to be saved, he must do so by entirely 
uh, predilectively, having nothing to do with merits or demerits of, of any of us. I mean, this is pure grace, anti-provisa merita. He gives the efficacious grace to those whom he chooses to give to, and that saves them. He withholds it from all others, and they are supposedly damned rightly by virtue of, of their own sins. But as you note, it's a fixed game. According to this teaching, none of us ever had any hope of doing anything other than committing mortal sin, but for the entirely predilective and, as far as our actions are concerned, utterly unpremised gift of that efficacious grace. It's a purely predestinarian system in Thomas. Thomas does not have a free will defense of the doctrine of hell. It never even occurred to him. He's a pure predestinarian which makes it rather odd that, that, that Rooney and other modern Thomists try to, I mean, commendably, not all of them, I would say most of those of the sort of renewed neo-Thomism, this renewed second scholasticism are of the Garagou-Lagrange type, and they just worship an evil god without divided conscience. But Rooney is of that camp that somehow tries to give us a C.S. Lewis-style defense of the notion of hell as something freely elected and uh, freely sustained and while uniting it to an otherwise uh, intact Thomistic view of grace and nature and fallenness. Well, next about the uh, fire of hell, Rooney characterizes his view to be consistent with two saints. The first is the Syriac saint, St. Isaac of Nineveh, who Rooney says believe that heaven and hell contain the same fire of God, but just received differently as joy and heaven and as distress in hell. The next saint Rooney refers to for his understanding of the fire of hell is St. Maximus Confessor, whom he says corrects both Origins and Gregory of Nyssa's belief that God would finally be reconciled with all. Rooney yeah. asserts that— uh, yeah, it, Rooney should not quote Maximus. He, he knows nothing about Maximus. Uh, Ma there's exactly one phrase in Maximus that suggests uh, a notion of eternal— separation from God, and even that's uh, an ambiguous phrase. And I think any good Maximus scholar knows that it's almost impossible to make sense of Maximus's system without universalism. So if Maximus wasn't a universalist, then the first person he would have had to correct would be himself, because his whole system of theology would have fallen apart. As you also know, Isaac of Nineveh was a universalist. Everybody now embraces this notion that the fires of hell are just the glory of God experienced according to the intentionality of the creature. That's almost a banal truism in theological discourse. But uh, the difference is that Isaac of Nineveh realizes that, that were God to allow the creature to persist in that state, if that's all the fire of hell were, then, then of course God would be an evil creator. He says as much. Rather, he's Specifically, he very clearly states the fires of hell are not eternal. This is very much uh, uh, something one finds in the East Syrian tradition as late as the 15th century. You can see it being re repeated as a truism by Solomon of Basra, for instance, that the, the, hell, the fire of hell mends, that the encounter with God's grace cannot simply be torment because it is, as Isaac says, not the way of the merciful creator. Al Kimmel, in his new book, Destined for Joy, has some nice quotes from Isaac of Nineveh. I found one of them relevant here. According to St. Isaac, quote, 
It is not the way of the compassionate maker to create rational beings in order to deliver them over mercilessly to unending affliction and punishment for things of which he knew even before they were fashioned, aware how they would turn out when he created them and whom nonetheless he created. Also, yeah. Jordan, Daniel, Jordan Daniel Wood in his new book on Maximus, uh, A Whole Mystery of Christ, I think makes a strong case that from several different angles, Maximus actually did envision the final salvation of all. Well, I mean, if he, if he if he did not, then his entire theology, which is far and away, I think, the richest um, statement of the whole Eastern tradition in one synthetic expression, his entire theology would fall apart. It would make no sense. I don't I don't see how one can get to the end of the major ambigua uh, without realizing that universalism is is necessarily entailed in his system of thought. Now, Maximus also, and this, I mean, I think Hans Urs von Balthasar is right about this when Maximus chooses to maintain what he called the an honorable silence. This is the silence he was talking about. That uh, he, he does not make explicit claims one way or the other. There is, as I say, one phrase that can be read as meaning uh, that one can enter into a state of perpetual being unwell. I don't know how else to uh, translate it, but to be honest, as we've discussed in the past, I think you and I, even even how we, we, we talk about perpetuity, eternity, language of Ionian uh, uh, reality is remarkably ambiguous. And uh, uh, that passage in Maximus uh, you know, simply does not amount to uh, uh, a clear rejection of universalism, whereas the entire thrust of his theology amounts to an almost inevitable affirmation of universalism. Uh, next, according to Rooney, he says that when it comes to understanding the reason for the existence of eternal hell, we should affirm the tradition on this, but we should not overspeculate. We can hypothesize, but we don't have to know the exact reason. We can trust that there are reasons of fittingness, which we may not be able to now comprehend. Yes, I, so, so that I mean, you, you, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but I mean it's it's again it's it's that sort of nonsensical notion uh, that we can use the excuse of divine transcendence as a way of saying that the affirmations of the nature of God that we take to be clear, such as Christ telling his disciples to think of God as father and really thinking in terms of their own experiences as fathers to understand how it is that God loves them, that in fact we can take that as, be, as being more or less vacated of content, that we can invoke transcendence as a way of justifying paradox, and that we can pretend that what by any sane calculus is a statement of pure moral idiocy is somehow actually mysteriously in the transcendent goodness of god the highest and purest of moral truths at that point faith is just nihilism i mean you have entirely severed all analogical continuity between human experience human reason human love and the nature of the god you're speaking about the the, the you know god might I mean, this this is the worst kind of nominalism, the worst kind of voluntarist picture of God. God might, uh, you know, by that way of speaking, you could justify God being the most diabolical imaginable agent. 
I have no patience for that. It's not a respectable position. It's not an intellectually coherent position. Uh, it's just a form of double talk. It's just a form of making the abysmally, obviously evil seem somehow mysteriously, infinitely good. At that point, faith becomes a contemptible thing. You've chosen to believe that evil is good, and that's the only argument you have for this belief. It's all a mystery. Well, Rooney uh, thinks it's very important to keep open the real possibility of an eternal hell, even though we may not know the reason for it. It's not for us to speak for God. Rooney says he's not claiming that he knows if any will finally be in hell. God has spoken for God. Again, Christ said, think of your own you know, think of your own experiences, fathers, when trying to understand the fatherhood of God. He has given us an analogical rule. To say that it's not for us to speak of God is, is you know, simply, again, a meaningless remark. It, it, it's entirely dissevered from the whole fabric of revelation. You know, we have a picture of what divine love looks like. We, it's, laid out in the Philippians hymn, for instance. Uh, no one is just making bold assertions. Uh, you know, when Christians make claims about universal, or when universalist Christians make the claims they do, they're working upon the assumption that the character of God is revealed in Christ in a, in a, in a way that is discernible, that is interpretable, that can be lived out with practical consequences in one's own life, and that actually entails a coherent notion of divine revelation. You know, I mean, what, what Rooney is saying is basically the whole spectacle of revelation may be nothing more than a, a sort of shadow play. And when we pull back the veil, it may turn out that God is entirely different from, not only so entirely different from anything we can conceive, not that, so different that in him, what we understand as evil is good, and what we understand as good is somehow condemned. Even though he himself, in his life in Christ, seems to be the model of goodness upon which we, we, we're, we're drawing our conclusions. Well, even though Rooney is in the Catholic tradition, he says that the idea that there are some who can possibly eternally be in hell is, is part of the teaching for the Catholic and the Orthodox, and it's part of the definitive classical tradition for everybody, that, and that we can trust that after we die, you know, we'll find out a good explanation for it. Yeah, right. After we die, there'll be a good explanation for why God's infinite cruelty is actually love. Yes, it's, it's the old lie by which people of a certain, you know, certain clerical caste uh, cast uh, maintain their their hold on the minds and wills of of the laity. Uh, he he really shouldn't presume to speak on this matter. The fact is, yeah, you'll find plenty of Orthodox who will make that claim. You'll find also plenty of Orthodox who are glibly, almost, you know, cheerfully, almost instinctively Universalist. There have been throughout the tradition. There is no doctrinal statement on the matter in Orthodoxy. There have been. In the past century and a half, various attempts by scholars to determine the theologuminal 
uh, lyseity of the notion of universalism, and they've all come back uh, with pretty much the same conclusion that it's uh, it's it's not a doctrine. They can't teach universalism as a doctrine, but that it's it's a tolerable, it's an acceptable theologumenon. And usually, you end up with something like Olivier Clément or Callistal Swear, or Metropolitan Antony, or uh, Abba Sophroni, or Abba Siluan, uh, you know, Abba Porphyrios. They, all, they come down on what you would call the hopeful universalist side. That is, they, they hope for, earnestly believe in the likelihood of universal salvation, but cannot, uh, do not feel authorized to call it doctrine. And uh, that is, yeah, again, now, much in, I will say this, in my lifetime in America, in English-speaking orthodoxy, there's been a shift towards a more infernalist, majoritarian view, principally because of the large number of former white evangelicals who have poured into the orthodox church uh, without really absorbing the long historical testimony of orthodoxy without understanding its ambiguities, its pluralities, its variety, its different historical phases. Many of them, and frankly, they've become almost a dominant voice in orthodoxy in this country. But again, uh, Dominic simply doesn't know what he's talking about there. He's he's making assertions based on a Catholic model of doctrinal closure, based and even that in a very dubious manner, in a way that simply just doesn't apply. We simply, you know, there there have not been any ecumenical councils since the Seventh Council, according to Orthodox teaching. Some Orthodox will claim that there are local councils that have real authority on these matters, but again, that's only suppositious because until <laughs> the rule is that until an ecumenical council ratifies a local synod, it's still just a local synod, no matter what claims one makes for it. And this issue, this issue has never been doctrinally addressed. There's only the you know the spurious material that was inserted into the record of the Fifth Ecumenical Council, which condemns a specific set of teachings that no one that we know of actually held, except perhaps some eccentric monks. It's after after the fact it came to be called Origenism, but it's not even called that by the council, and that's it. You know, so this much I'll grant Dominic. I mean Rooney. Sorry is speaking for the majority tradition. And that should be sufficient evidence that what he's arguing for is probably wrong. Well, in the article in Church Life magazine, Rooney distinguishes between what he calls hard universalism and soft universalism. Hard universalism is that it is impossible for anyone to go to hell forever because it is necessarily true that all shall be saved, which he deems heretical. Then you have a non-heretical view he calls soft universalism, which he associates with Jacques Maritain and Hans Urs von Balthasar, in which God doesn't absolutely have to save all. So it is compatible then with the orthodox position where we can't know if all will be saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think I've been clear on that in the past, that hopeful universalism is an incoherent position. Hopefully universalists believe that the salvation of all would be the best and happiest possible end to the story. 
And then they hold out the possibility that God would fail to bring about the best possible end of creation, and and to that degree would be to, you know, at least relatively a tragic and failed creator, and that there would always be a residue of unreconciled tragedy within the fabric of of creation and of the the, the final reality of of God's work towards creation. I, I find that uh, just a paradoxical and pointless sort of position to hold if you believe that it would be best that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, then you have no excuse for doubting that God will bring about what is best. But again, since Rooney's entire view is based on a model of freedom that is philosophically incoherent to the core and obliges us to believe in in a notion of the possibility of rejecting God while being sufficiently compass meant as having a sufficient and direct knowledge of the true goodness of God in relation to our own natures, that it could be morally justifiable for God to leave us in that condition. Since that in and of itself is incoherent, this distinction is simply between a coherent universalism and an incoherent universalism or semi-universalism. But again, you notice how there's always the constant, and this is always the mark of a poor thinker, this constant retreat to the language of heresy. You mentioned uh, uh, Justin Coyle's article not long ago. Forgive me for having a weak voice today as well as a somewhat irascible uh reaction to this entire line of conversation. <laughs> but but what Coyle said is true, is that, you know, when you actually look at the development of doctrine, you have to be able to distinguish those things which are termini ad quos, so to speak, a doctrine that's a terminus ad quem. It's been clearly and fully defined. And you'll find that those sorts of doctrines are, for the most part, rather minimal in formulation. The way in which they're phrased leaves remarkable latitude for interpretation by later determinations, right? And those which are, as a result then, also termini ad ab quibus or a quibus, or or, a doctrine that's a, a... terminus a quo, from which you're moving forward, but but the full meaning of that doctrine is not defined. Now, again, as I say, I have friends, I don't know if I should name names, because who knows what complications it creates for them within their own world, but I have plenty of Catholic friends, scholars, who, who can make very cogent arguments that to the degree that there are clear doctrinal statements on these matters, they're nowhere near so, uh, crystal clear as Rooney suggests. And that's why, just for that reason alone, uh, simply resorting to the language of heresy is always the practice of somebody whose case is weak and whose approach to argument is kind of thuggish. The other problem is that why on earth would I care what a Roman Catholic Dominican interpreting his tradition says is heretical. I am not Roman Catholic. It does not matter to me. And the, the, the issue really for the wider Christian world isn't, you know, whether you deem this to be heresy or not. 
The issue is whether or not the arguments made for one side or the other are better. And to be honest, I think that you know it's clearly the case that the infernalist position has always been the one. Not only does it doesn't have the weaker case to make; its case is infinitely weak. It has always been a gross contradiction, pretending to be cogent. The contradiction is very simple. Somehow, we're to believe that God is infinite love and also that he allows rational creatures to endure a state of infinite or eternal suffering. Somehow, we're to believe that God is just and also that we already come into this world lying under condemnation that but for the intervention of an extraordinary and unmerited grace will leave us to that state of eternal suffering. And we're supposed to believe that God is good and just and loving, even though, according to to these traditional teachings, God does not extend that extraordinary efficacious grace, grace to all creatures. In the Thomistic tradition, he merely provides a sufficient grace while withholding from each of us, except the elect, the power that would allow us to take advantage of that sufficient grace. It doesn't so seem very. Bit, yeah, it seems a sufficient grace is a bit of a misnomer. There, it's it's yeah. sufficient, but it can't really. It's sufficient once it's made efficacious. It's yeah. sufficient <laughs> in that, that if God chooses to give you access to it, that's like saying, you know, Jeff Bezos's personal income is sufficient to feed the world for a month, uh, but as it happens, you know. You don't have access to that income, so it really doesn't. I'm sure it could feed the world for far more, far more than that. Now that I think about it, but I mean, you know, you get the point that Elon Musk's personal bank account could could uh, get everyone a college degree. And uh, yes, if you have access to it, but curiously enough, you, that's not within your discretion. But all of these teachings, I mean, it's, it's quite obvious that 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 there is something fundamentally absurd. In the statements, uh, in, in many of these traditional unders. Now, I, I happen to believe that you know there's a completely different tradition in Christian belief, you know, about the nature of salvation, the nature of grace. A certain, in fact, the whole grace uh, and nature problem as it evolved in the West, I think we 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 know is something of an aberration. Certainly, has nothing to do with either the New Testament or the Greek patristic tradition. But leaving that aside. Any tradition that says you know, you, you're, you, you're born helplessly in a state that leads to eternal damnation. You can be delivered from this state only by the extraordinary and entirely supererogatory intervention of the God who created you. That this God will allow a certain number to fall short of, of salvation by virtue of the withholding of that efficacious grace or by virtue of simply withholding a certain kind of assistance in certain crucial moments, that somehow, despite the ignorance, pain, suffering, and, and mortality into which all humanity is born, this is entirely a matter of our own responsibility, even though we can't possibly know the nature of God which, as Rooney keeps telling us. I mean, so we certainly can't know him as the infinite good who fulfills the good, good ends of our nature. I mean, if he's quite as transcendent of analogical understanding as Rooney tells us, 
And that, on top of all this, we must affirm that this God is infinitely good, infinitely just, infinitely loving, and has truly revealed himself in the outpouring of Christ on the cross, and that that the words of Christ are to be trusted regarding the character of God. That is just all a morass of meaningless nonsense. It all adds up to a false religion, a religion of sheer assertion without a rational core. Now, Let's look at the other possibility. <laughs> Let's say that Origen or Gregory of Nyssa or Macrina or Isaac of Nineveh had this right, that God creates all things in their last end for union with him, that the whole purpose of creation is that God becomes created, that the created might become the uncreated. Those are Maximus's words, by the way, leaving nothing behind, also something Maximus says. Let's assume that's the purpose of creation. That, that, uh, and that, therefore, the incarnation and uh, of God and the deification of creatures is the foundation of creation, not some after-the-fact desperate rescue maneuver on the part of a God who hadn't properly secured his creatures against the possibility of sin. And that, as, again, Origen, Gregory, the other, uh, and these other figures are sort of, let's go right up to the present, the greatest... A Christian theologian of the 20th century by leagues and fathoms, uh, Sergei Bulgakov, that this is the end that God will bring about, the total deification and joyous union of all creatures with God, at which time creation will at last have come properly to pass, and that this is what God accomplishes in Christ, and that the experience of hell is the experience of the diminishing, ever-diminishing reality of the egotism, vice, cruelty, ignorance that, that we have visited upon ourselves, but that cannot be the final word of God's creation. Now, that's a coherent faith. That means something. If the choice that Rooney offers is the choice of, you know, if this is the Christianity on offer, then it should be rejected with contempt. It's nonsensical, it's evil, it's based upon a moral idiocy so profound that it can't tell the difference between cruelty and love. Or, ideally, if this other uh, understanding of the story is correct, you are genuinely being offered something of transcendent beauty, goodness, and logical consistency. But, I'm quite happy to believe that you know what Rooney believes is Christianity is his religion. I say that's an evil religion. And anyone who holds to it holds to the worship of an evil God. Well, speaking of evil, when Father Rooney says one of the problems with hard universalism, as he calls it, is that the famous conclusion is that not only all humans, uh, but even Satan and his angels will be in heaven in the end. Yes, indeed. Yep. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not seeing the problem there. A rational nature is a rational nature. Yeah. Uh, all means all. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's a problem if you believe that someone has to get it in the end. Someone has to suffer eternally to, for the us to feel good about ourselves. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's no point in being saved if, if if nobody ends up being totally damned. You know, I mean, that's 
It's like saying, there's no point in, in making it in society if there aren't also losers that I can look down on. Well, next, Rooney recognizes that hard universalism, as he causes it, calls it, causes us to deal with the question of human freedom and God's freedom. Here, Father Rooney refers directly to your work, Dr. Hart, and to your yeah, claim. And, that- and, uh, before you go into it, can I just say, I'm just going to state this up front. On this issue, Rooney went through so many contortions, contradicting himself uh, in so many different ways during the course of these arguments, that it became clear that he has very little understanding of of the logical problems he's courting. But he was clever enough to figure out that he wasn't convincing anyone. So l- let me do him this, this um, favor, so to speak. I believe that he's entirely sincere in thinking that he can unite his libertarian model of freedom to something like Aquinas's intellectualism. Now, he's wrong about this, but I believe that he's acting in good faith. The problem is there's no way rationally to construct a picture of freedom that isn't incoherent either in one direction or the other. That is, either in uh, in ultimately being reducible, in the way he wants to, that is, without either being ultimately reducible to sheer spontaneity of the will, which isn't freedom in any meaningful sense, or being uh, a sheer determinism of the will based on prior conditions, which again, is not freedom in any meaningful sense. The only possible model of freedom that, that, that has any, uh, and I, again, I'll let you go, th- go through it. It's just that I'm going to say the only possible model of freedom that that has any bearing in this in the course of this conversation is freedom in terms of the relationship of the rational will and mind to the eternal goodness of God to the degree and also in relation to what is the true good end of the creature's nature uh, that brings about as. Thomas would affirm, for instance, the happiness of the creature, the good end of the creature, it must be also the highest happiness of the creature. One can be free then only to the degree that one's knowledge is clear of these things, is perfect. One can be perfectly free only to the degree that one perfectly knows God. But if one, as a rational being, perfectly knows God, then one's freedom can have only one end, right? We understand this. I mean, if you, if you want to recite Dominic, if you, if you want to go over Rooney's um, treatment of the matter, feel free to do so. But I, I'm just going to keep repeating the same thing over and over again. He wants a libertarian model of freedom that makes no sense. He wants to unite that to a picture of, of divine justice with, to which it's irreconcilable. He wants somehow to attribute it to Thomas Aquinas, which is simply nonsense. Well, let me go on then with his uh, uh, critique. He says that the problem with your view, as he sees it, is that in your view, God has to create the world. He necessarily does it. He cannot yeah. not create the world. Right. Um, then, first of all, I, that let me let me explain that. That is simply um, that's evidence of two things. Uh, one is is just that that Rudy does not know the larger Christian tradition of thought. Um, 
on a lot of issues. The other is just philosophical ineptitude. Nowhere, he's referring to something completely different from a book called You Are Gods, in which I point out that that understanding God as the perfectly free creator of the universe, and, and I state over and over and over again that there is no relation of necessity to creation. What what uh, what one has to say is that that God is not some deliberating finite agent choosing between the different possible futures. I think this. Oh, I may create or I may not create. I may create the reality in which Susie has cancer, or I might create a reality in which she doesn't. You know, let me decide on this as though he were a finite being, a being among beings inhabiting a larger landscape of possibilities and having to choose among them. What I said was no. Uh, you know, creation is not a choice in that sense that God makes. Rather, creation is the expression of who he freely is, and that divine freedom is the absolute impossibility of anything inhibiting God in expressing the nature, uh, his nature, expressing who and what he is. This uh, makes all at you know the talk of liberty and necessity kind of meaningless in regard to God, because he himself is the fullness of reality. He's not a being choosing among different possible courses of action. This uh, is hardly a new idea. I mean, <laughs> you can find it in the church. It's, you know, it's quite clearly the case there in many of the Greek fathers, such as as Maximus, that, that God is not a deliberating agent. Uh, you find it in Anselm. You find it in, in countless modern Christians. Even C.S. Lewis says it. It doesn't mean that creation is necessary in a modal sense. It means it's inevitable simply from the character of God, but that's not a compulsion. Now, this, again, as I say, this should not be controversial. This is an old idea. It's obviously correct. As somehow, and, and I'll admit that part of the blame here is Thomas Aquinas, who quite uh, inconsistently with his own picture of God does seem to talk at times as though God chooses among different possible worlds to create. But you know, there is nothing there that suggests necessity in a modal sense. It suggests inevitability in a moral sense because of who God is. That's like, you know, th there are many things, you know, for instance, you are, I'm, I'm going to assume, you're never going to walk up to a uh, baby carriage and slap a baby in the face, right? You're not, you're right, never going yes. to go and willfully <laughs> kick a puppy, assuming that you're accomplishment, right? Okay, that right. you're saying. Now, does that mean that you're constrained, you are forced by necessity not to strike the baby, or that rather that you are free to be the person you are, and therefore you don't believe, you know, you're not the sort of person who's going to strike a baby? That entire issue that Rooney, I mean, that's just the most embarrassing moment in his argument. There, you know, there's no notion of the constraint to create. It is not a necessity, but yes, it is an inevitability. Uh, you know, God is the bonum diffusivum sui. Plenty of Christian thought has been poured into this notion that God creates of his nature, of who he is, out of his character, that it is unthinkable that God would do otherwise, not because he is bound by necessity, but because he is infinitely free and no necessity can inhibit him in the full expression of the nature he is. Well, this is this 
this is where that he he does make the claim that you are in what he calls big ball world series right and, and, and again I, I, I guess he is not a good philosopher okay this is something i have to point out i know him i've talked to him i'm i'm he's sincere but he simply does not understand i mean he simply doesn't think things through very well it, I'm not saying he doesn't have the capacity to do so. I think maybe sometimes he gets the wind in his sails. He's moved by too much sincerity, too much earnestness, too much dogmatism. But this is not even an interesting debate. What he's saying is just bad logic. Well, uh, then continuing on, Rooney says that if God has to save all, then that God mean God also has to necessarily create human beings by their essence in a state of grace. And here he characterizes your argument as being that you argue the old fundamental option theory that mortal sin is impossible because the supernatural love of God is naturally inherent in human beings, is natural to our existence, in that we are created in a state of grace. I, I do, here, yes. I do agree with the Greek fathers on this, yeah. Well, he says that in your new book, You Are Gods, that you just say flat out, God could not create us without grace and that it's natural for humans to become God. And this, right. again, he yep. says, is big league World Series heresy. Except that it isn't. It's straightforward Maximus the Confessor, straightforward Gregory of Nyssa. It's part of the tradition. It's the Eastern tradition, not the Augustinian tradition. The Augustinian tradition created a false understanding of the term grace. In fact, the very notion of grace is not even a theological category in that sense, and Paul neither is the na nature. The only time he talks about nature in uh, in Romans, for instance, Paul, that is, he's talking entirely about lines of descent, the lineage of grapevines, or uh, women having, you know, uh, engaging in sexual uses that are either procreative or not. He has no categories of grace in nature. Grace is simply the way God behaves towards all creatures. But yes, he's right. I I most definitely say that it is impossible for God to create creature, rational creatures without grace and without the potency to become divine, that that is what it is to be a rational creature, that uh, a rational nature exists only the, to the degree that it is a direct and insatiable hunger for the direct union with God and therefore always already possesses the light, you know, the lumen gloriae of uh Mystic tradition. I want to point out, however, that what Rooney is defending isn't even isn't even just the Augustinian tradition here, because Augustine, in some sense, actually says something similar. Uh, he just has a, a rather constrained notion of of grace as as merit, as divine merit, as opposed to human merit, which is rather unfortunate. But what Rooney's defending is much more this sort of very weird tradition within the second scholasticism of Thomism that really created this two-tier notion that there could be something like a, a, a world of pure nature that God creates entirely devoid of grace, which of course leads one to ask exactly what the act of creation is, but uh, and that actually rational natures could exist in such a reality but but in such a way that they their their rational natures would be wholly fulfilled within a purely natural end, for reasons I give in the book, and for re and reasons that no one has given a 
you know, an even vaguely adequate response to the, you know, in this this camp. That's obviously nonsensical. A rational nature can only rest content, as Nicholas of Cusa says so so beautifully and so brilliantly, in the infinite end that is the divine essence. A rational nature is either graced or doesn't exist. Um, so yes, he's he's absolutely right about that. Far from it being heresy, however, it is the teaching of the Orthodox Church. Always has been. There's no, I mean, there the his notion of nature and grace has been abominated, condemned, attacked by every significant Orthodox theologian of the 20th century as as something uh, heretical. So if we're going to trade accusations of heresy, according to the dominant orthodox theological position. The the understanding of grace and nature that, that Rooney holds to is the grossest of heresies, according to the Orthodox Church. And if he wants me to be concerned about what Catholics think, then I reciprocally think he should be concerned uh, about what the Orthodox think. Well, when I was uh, thinking about this, I was reminded of uh, Acts, the 17th chapter, where Paul is speaking to a group of pagans and he says, God is not far from any one of us, for in him we live, we live and move and have our being. Yeah. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, and that is genos. Yeah. That means that we are the genos of God, direct descendants of God, of God's kind, God's kindred, and God's race. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean that is the New Testament teaching. It's, it's you know— I, I, it's explicitly the case in Paul. I mean, in Paul, you know, there's not even a clear division between human spirit and divine spirit. There are times when the spirit of God is clearly delineated in terms of of coming specifically from God. So, in my translation, I always try to capitalize that just to call attention to the fact that there, at least, Paul seems to be talking about the spirit in the privileged sense of 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 the immediately present uh, reality of the divine spirit. But if you actually look at many of Paul's teachings, there's a place insensibly within us in which human spirit and divine spirit simply are not distinguished. And you find this even in figures like Irenaeus. For, you know. and, and why not? It's right there in the Bible, isn't it? What made Adam a living soul? According to Genesis, is the, the neshama Yahweh, the, the breath, the spirit of God, in us, the notion that there could be a rational creature not already called to deification has has simply, you know, I don't know what to tell Dominic. It, it, the Eastern tradition has rejected that from the earliest moments in the in the in the patristic canon, and it's simply it's simply in, incompatible with the New Testament picture. As well, you well, say, you have Paul saying, "We are of the same genus." Um, I was criticized because of using the very title "You Are Gods." I'm quoting John 10, and you know, it said, you know, someone said to me, "But, but Jesus there is just quoting uh, something." But, but, but they're not, you know, that objection doesn't seem to put it in context. What is Jesus actually saying there? Yeah, he's using the verse in a way that the original authors didn't intend it, because for one thing, they weren't actually talking about the judges of Israel. They the original text has to do with Yahweh among the God, the you know the Elohim, and condemning the gods to death. But but Jesus is using it in a very specific way to answer a question they're asking: How does he dare to call himself the Son of God? And what he says is incredibly radical: is that um, 
you know, human beings are already gods in some sense. So that's even more astonishing than me simply saying I'm the son of God. You know, it's, 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 and if you look historically in patristic tradition, we tend to think of certain verses as being the ones that are principally concerned with deification, such as, I would that you all become partakers of the divine nature, or that they should the glory that you and I shared before the foundation of the world, and so on and so forth, the obvious ones. But if you look at the patristic canon, you'll find that this verse from John was the most important of all for many of them, because they recognized that something very strange was going on there. Christ was being asked about his own divine status, and he justifies it by pointing to the divinity of his human interlocutors. Well, I notice also that in your translation of Ephesians three fourteen to 15, you translate it, For this reason I kneel before the Father, Pater, from whom every family, Patria, in heaven and earth derives its name. And then in your notes on this, you say that this means that every lineage or family or people or tribe is derived from a single forefather. The point here is that every clan or people ultimately derives its lineage from the one God who is the Father of all. And then Ephesians 4, 6 uh refers to one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Right. Yeah. No, these are rather the I mean again, I know that this aspect of of, of early Christian tradition kind of fell on hard times within the whole Western tradition. Technically speaking, though, it is Catholic teaching, you know, this this language of deification. And when you go to its sources, when you go to its logic, it does not fit into the two-tier model of the of the second Thomism. And that's what Rooney's speaking of. Uh, whether he likes it or not, what he's calling heresy pretty much is the almost universal testimony of orthodoxy East and West, that all spiritual beings exist as already called to union with God, in whom alone they live and move and are, and who are of the same genos as God. And you can take exception to that if you want, but understand that you are then defending a minority position, an aberrant position, an unscriptural position, and a fundamentally incoherent position. Because if you really believe that a rational nature can exist intact in its entirety, uh, with any end other than union of God, then union with God, then you believe that the deified creature is no longer the creature. But that's a different argument, and this gets into the issue of the misuse of the concept of obediential potential. So that would take us hours. Well, next, most, according to Rick- be honest, most most Thomists don't understand the issue. When that book came out, it was attacked by let's see, Edward Fazer and others. Clear, in a way that clearly demonstrated that they didn't even know the tradition they were defending. They didn't realize the difference between the traditional understanding of obediential potential and what had become of it in this weird parallel tradition of the second Thomism. Uh, next, according to Rooney, he says, we need to approach uh, the real possibilities of mortal sin and eternal hell with what he calls double effect reasoning where an action brings a good and an evil effect, and this happens in self-defense and warfare. When it comes to hell, the reason that hell exists is that God permits people to sin and remain in sin and then resurrects them eternally, but their suffering is accidental. 
God doesn't cause it. Which again directly. makes God a moral simpleton. Again, makes God evil. He doesn't. You know. I mean, again, he's he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He could provide efficacious grace to all. This has all been established. Uh, what Rooney is saying there is that again, for some mysterious reason, some greater good. Uh, God can permit the eternal torment of rational natures without it being a tragic and and culpable uh, contradiction of, of of his own goodness. It's the same moral idiocy repeated in a different register. That that is not a serious argument. There's in fact that one should simply cause people to sneer because it's just the same obfuscation. Oh uh, well, in some sense, it's all for the greater good that uh, that this. You know, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, as I said, in in that all shall be saved. We can just say that this is one soul. Let's say that everyone except Hitler. <laughs> okay, everyone except Hitler. You know, Hitler is the one casualty of this moral universe. All the rest uh, made it, but but God had you know had to leave Hitler to his own devices and then understand. Uh, as I said in the book, there's a kind of modal collapse between God's, what, what are called in the tradition, his antecedent and his consequent decrees, if, if he's truly the creator of all things out of being. What that means is that all the goodness of the kingdom, not accidentally, because you see there, there are no accidents here. This is the mistake that, that, that Rudy's making with this gibberish about double effect. The possibility of that eternal damnation was written into the fabric of the conditions of the act of creation. It's part of the price that was accepted in advance, and you cannot will the totality without willing all of its parts positively. Even if it was only an open possibility, it's not accidental, it's essential. It is essential to the whole calculus of creation. And in this case, all of creation, all its goodness, all its bliss, all its joy in the final bliss of the kingdom is premised upon the cost of this one soul suffering eternal abject misery. That's the price. That's the wager that was made at the beginning, and that is therefore part of the essence of the deal. I, I, I beg people to go and read Meditation 1 of That All Shall Be Saved more than once. Seriously, because again and again, the argument there has been missed, not because I think I failed to state it, but because people keep assuming that it's about something else. It's about the problem of evil or something. It's not. It's about what is essential and what is accidental, what is, what is directly willed by God and what is merely permitted by God, and how this distinction necessarily collapses at the eschatological horizon, if you believe in creatio ex nihilo. What that means is that your joy in heaven, the joy of your your child, you know, the, the bliss of all, nonetheless, is based upon, is sustained by, is in some sense paid for by the eternal torment of this one rational nature forgotten in the darkness. That is evil. That is the ultimate evil of religion. The, the willingness to sacrifice one for the sake of the many in an ultimate and absolute way. And, you know, I, I you know, the, you know, William James has a wonderful statement to this effect, you know, saying just that, imagine just one nature 
in that far-off place that you never see. What rational moral nature would not ultimately recognize the tragic wickedness in this bargain? Or the, uh, you know, the Ursula K. Le Guin story, the ones who walk away from Amelos. That's always a good meditation. The point is that the double effect, I, I've dealt with that in that all shall be saved. Rooney did not understand the argument. He still does not understand it. And I'm going to state, as I have before, that the argument as it stands is irrefutable. Until somebody actually answers the argument that I make there in a way that addresses the logic and addresses it coherent. I mean, there was an attempt made recently in an article in Modern Theology. Again, it failed, but at least it was an honest attempt. Uh, I'm going to keep saying that. If you can show me how, what you call an accidental effect is not indeed an essential reality based upon the terms of the bargain God made with his own moral nature in creation, so to speak. If you can show me how that's true in in such a way that you can make uh, the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo and and God's ultimate intentions in creation cohere with that idea without reducing it to a reducing the goodness of creation to an only relative good and therefore also a relative evil. I'm going to continue to assert that that the argument's irrefutable and that there's no longer, as far as I'm concerned, to me it's not even imaginable that one could have an excuse for not seeing it. Uh, Rooney comments further comments further on your position that the concept of mortal sin is incoherent, observing that while a free person does not act arbitrarily or randomly, they also often act for the good generically as they understand it and not right. out of a supernatural love for God. Yes, that is false. There is no way to act at all uh, except out of a supernatural love for God, however distorted our understanding of it. To speak of the good generically is meaningless, because why is the good generically attractive? What makes it the good? I mean, if we're going to talk about transcendentals, what is what makes a, a, a transcendental attractive to the rational will? Other than that, it is at one with the divine essence, the nature of God. Uh, it, it, that, that's just, uh, you know, the, all he's doing there is stopping short of the ultimate rationale that alone makes talk of the transcendentals meaningful. Uh, you know, in the inter- and what is the good generically? Yes. Uh, um, but for, I'm going to repeat, and this is a Henri de Lubac writing to Maurice Blondeau, you know, that famous letter, what is a rational nature other than an insatiable hunger for, for, for God, right? Well, that's not just a, that's not just a pious sentiment. That's basically a phenomenological claim that, that, that our ability to choose anything, to love anything, to evaluate anything, to prefer one thing over another comes about out of a natural agitation of the will towards the good in and of itself. Well, the good in and of itself is not just a generic good. That doesn't mean anything. The generic good is only recognizable as and desirable as a generic good in light of the good in itself. And what is the good in itself? It is that infinite coincidence of goodness, truth, beauty, being, unity that is the divine nature. That is what a rational nature is oriented towards from its first moment, or it does not exist. 
uh, he's just talking nonsense there. Uh, next, uh, Rooney claims that if human beings are necessary products of God's nature, then that causes us to enter into the heresy of pantheism. Father oh, Rooney says yeah, that no, Dr. Well, Hart... Well, already that, established that there is no such necessity in my theology, then, uh, then that we can skip that. I'll simply say that the word pantheism is meaningless. People use it all the time without being able to define it in a way that corresponds to the actual beliefs of anyone. I mean, you can go ahead and finish if you want, but I mean, it's uh, go ahead and read what he says if you like. Oh, that's okay. I think we can continue on. He says, I, um, I, I uh, mean, the, but it, do, do understand that this is kind of late in the day, is that um, it's just another example of how this whole conversation unfolded, why I grew so impatient with it, and why, as you may have noted, there's a certain tone of impatience in my voice now. He just kept jumping from one bad argument to another. I mean, you know, pantheism now. I mean, it's like, it's like Edward Fazer. It's a you just just throw the word out there without bothering to make distinctions in the hope that it'll have a rhetorical effect. Uh, it's it's simply not it's not it's not arguing. It's it's simply making noise. Well, uh, according to Rooney, another concern is that our human moral intuition is not a sufficient reason to assert that God can't allow mortal sin to persist forever. Just yeah, because- yes, it is. It, Christ clearly says, use the, the analogy of your own fatherhood to understand the fatherhood of God. And yes, we have that much moral intelligence to know the difference between allowing someone to suffer forever and relieving and, and knowing that that's not love. If we don't have that much moral intelligence, then we, we know nothing at all because, you know, at that point, all rationality has been, has been defeated. I think I call this the contagion of equivocity and, and that all shall be saved. That's just an empty statement. Uh, again, not worth the time even to, it takes to, uh, to argue with it. Another concern uh, that's kind of similar, he says, we make ourselves culpable for eternal damnation because even though we could have chosen for God and the good, we ignore God and go our own way. That's clearly work. false. And once again, we, we come into this life burdened by any number of, of qualifying conditions that inhibit and damage us. We contribute to them, but we're not the sole authors of our own beings. We also can only... Uh, act according to what we know and to the degree that we really truly knew the goodness of God and the goodness of our own nature, we would not be able to choose any end but that. I mean, that's just, even Aquinas says that. I mean, I'm sorry, but 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 that's not even good Thomism. Uh, we fail to choose because God has withheld from us the proper full knowledge uh, of God, according to Aquinas, according to the tradition that the Rooney is working within. But yes, we can most definitely, uh, we can most definitely say that we cannot possibly choose in that sort of absolute, uh, inculpatory way, uh, in full in, in full knowledge of the truth. And without that full knowledge, we don't possess sufficient freedom, certainly, to damn ourselves forever. If we are damned as a result of such choices, it would be only because God's a sadistic brute. 
According to Rooney, there are three truths that can get you to hell. You can sin mortally. Knowing facts about God, the world, and yourself that is knowing better doesn't necessarily prevent you from committing mortal sins. And God doesn't necessarily need to prevent you from sinning mortally. You don't deserve God's grace to prevent you from persisting in sin. Okay. All of those are false statements, aren't they? You cannot, I have just for reasons I've just given, it's impossible to have sufficient knowledge and also to choose against the good. There is no such faculty or capacity within a rational nature. Yes, God does owe it to the creature to save him. God is the creator. If God is the author of my being, then I am entirely at his disposal and mercy. Then, then as George MacDonald and others have said, yes. He owes it to me because he owes it to the goodness of his own nature. Um, everything that you just said, the, 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 I mean, everything that you just quoted Rooney is saying is objectively false. Well, Rooney continues on. He, he wants to stress that people are moral agents and that people are free, that we can only become partakers of the divine nature by the free decisions we make. We don't participate. <laughs> Well, let me just because this is where he, he says we don't participate in divine nature by grace alone. Orthodox theology standing against the Pelagian heresy sees how all of this follows from the doctrine of original sin. So this is where he's concerned that you're committing the sin of the Pelagian heresy. <laughs> right, I know. He started off his argument saying that I was I was guilty of absolute determinism, and then it ended up being Pelagianism as as again and again his arguments failed to make any impression. Um, and it was rather, yeah, as I say, it was a rather haphazard thing. No, uh, once again, first of all, I don't, I mean, obviously being orthodox, I, the, the, the accusation of Pelagianism to me is, is meaningless, you know, because, uh, uh, no one actually ever held to Pelagianism, not even Pelagius, uh, everyone, but but if my claim is that divine grace is present in all things, then obviously I'm not making the claim that human beings devoid of grace uh, are, are capable of determining themselves. Uh, moreover, it's precisely <laughs> the the doctrine of original sin that is in its proper acceptation, the notion that w- that our natures are wounded, that we come into this world already ignorant, mortal, torn within ourselves, alienated from a God that we never knew fully, and so on, that makes precisely the arguments he makes elsewhere regarding our libertarian culpability for the failure properly to choose all the more absurd. Uh, you know, it, it, it's again, it's an incoherent picture of reality. It's you know, simply grasping at one argument after another whether they could hear with one another or not. I thought this was uh, interesting, the way he put this. He says, Rooney says that eternal hell is better than annihilation and even good for the people in hell. And Father <laughs> Rooney understands Maximus Confessor to say that in Christ, all of us are going to become part of Christ's body, that the damned matter. They're not let go. God and those in oh, heaven God. continue to take care of them. Hell is like taking care of crazy people in the nursing home. God allows our continuing community with those in hell. The dam become like the wound in Christ's heart. God is holding them close, like restraining, restraining and caring for a crazy person, like holding on to a suicidal a loved one. Utterly pathetic creator God turns out to be. What an ass! I mean, you know that that would make him is that that's the best he could come up with. That's his kingdom. 
It's a kingdom with a huge insane asylum and and one in which the inmates are in, in perpetual unhappiness, but he loves them. Oh, and so he sustains them in being. That's better than... I mean, it, again, this is just gibberish. I mean, this is not something people should take seriously. This is this is trying to justify the unjustifiable. So this is just calling evil good. I mean, it, it's 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 utterly ridiculous, and I don't think any sane conscience allows one to think that way. It's only uh, a sort of weird fideism and a fear. I mean, the terror that 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 uh, that that more doctrinaire forms. Of, of belief have sort of seared into the consciences, consciences of the faithful that makes anyone tolerate r- ridiculous claims of that sort. Maximus is clear also, though, that, that for God to be all in all, he must be the all of the rational will. He must be the consuming end to which the rational will rushes in the embrace of love. He's very clear on that. So the notion that, 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 that somehow the totus Christus <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that the totus Christus is made up of both the saved and the damned, and that the damned are in misery, but but that's okay because God sustains them in their misery eternally because they're like a wound in his heart. Well, the hell with his heart then, you know? I mean, you know, what, what a miserable, dank, dark, vicious, evil heart he must have if you actually think that that's how he deals with his creatures. I, I thought it sorry, again, again, I have to apologize you can see I'm not in a good mood about any of this because I've heard it all 10,000 times. I'm tired at some very deep, some very profound level. I'm tired of moral idiocy calling itself goodness and convincing the faithful that the evil, that, 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 that an evil vision of God is goodness itself. If you can state, if you can say things like, think about what he's saying. I mean, just, I'm, I'm asking, let me ask you personally, what's your reaction to something like that? You know, that, that, that God sustains the damned in their misery out of eternity because they're part of the, the big picture, the, the fullness of Christ. But they're, they're like the inmates of the asylum that for some reason, God chooses to sustain in being infinitely. Well, Can you actually make sense of that? Can you even imagine being able to make sense of that? Well, what I thought was interesting about it was that he recognizes that the Christian idea that in Christ, all of us are going to become part of Christ's body. Yeah. So to me, he gets that right. And that's what Irenaeus picked up on. That's sure. in Ephesians 1.10, the, the Irenaeus, or well, in Ephesians 1.10 about the recapitulation yeah. In Christ. So I thought it was interesting that that he held he, he wanted the damned to not be other than in Christ's body. But then I started to think, OK, what percentage of Christ's body is the damn going to be? Well, a large, not just some small wound, according to most theologies, the majority of Christ's body yeah, will be, I mean, this, will be uh, hell. Right, the body of Christ is apparently uh, absolutely riddled with cancer. You know, eternally. Yeah, eternally. It's a God is a, the body of Christ is an eternal cancer patient. Yeah, but okay. There's a lot of pity there, apparently. So. Okay, well, uh, I'll just give you this is a kind of a closing salvo that uh, Rooney says that if we say eternal hell is impossible, it says I don't need help to live a good life. 
and it therefore undermines the cross. If my destiny is natural to me and unavoidable, and if God has to bring it about, then I don't need God's help. Instead, we should trust God. Universalism gets Christianity all mixed up. They are focusing on the wrong things. They are proud. They are not hoping in God. Their whole viewpoint breathes being a cult, a sect, and groupies. They get caught up around personalities. They wouldn't believe in God anymore if they found out anybody went to hell. When it comes to universal salvation, universalists say scripture allows universalism, but scripture doesn't allow it. They say the church fathers allow universalism. No, they don't. They're misinterpreting them. Gregory of Nyssa was one guy. We don't follow one guy. They say the church allows it. No, it doesn't. They say, well, I just believe it. This is just straightforwardly the spirit of heresy. We have to keep listening to this gibberish. I mean, I'm sorry, but I mean, this is just a child. This is just childish ranting. There's, there's nothing going on there. There's no argument being made there. No universalist in the history of the church has ever believed that, that, that salvation is simply something that naturally occurs absent the actual presence of Christ, the, absent the working of the Spirit. They believe, obviously, that God is, has created all of reality in the Son and brings all, thing to, all things to fruition only in and through Christ. I mean, he's he's arguing. I mean, he's attacking uh, universalism by claiming something that is objectively false about the tradition. He's also making statements about scripture and tradition that are simply statements of ignorance and and willful ignorance. At that, I, I don't know. I, I find that I, the, the, I I don't. I have to admit, I I came on sort of reluctantly to talk to you about this because I just didn't think Rooney was worth the time. There are other critics that I think are worth debating with. I didn't think that that this rose to the level of serious discourse. And I, I have to say at the end here, I still feel that way. It is a discourse, however, that makes me angry. It makes me angry because it not only misrepresents the beliefs that it, it pretends to be dealing with, it's shot through with a deep, deep moral stupidity one that is shocking. And it's horrible to think that that way of thinking, that that way of seeing things is so prevalent in the Christian world. It does call into question for me, really, whether the Christian tradition as a whole does not, at times, argue against itself. My well, only I, is that, that, you know, the belief which I hold to that it's not a matter of one well, first of all, it's not one guy. Obviously, Gregory Fness is hardly the only universalist in this tradition. You know, uh, in fact, I think all the Cappadocians were. Even Basil, despite uh, uh, the thing that's attributed to him in the Regula that says otherwise, because I don't actually believe he wrote that part of the Regula. So, but but even if it were true, I mean, I have plenty of of, of figures throughout the history of the church. But the question is, which guys? Which which men and women, you know? Okay, uh, am I going to take the word of of Gregory of Nyssa and Macrina, his sister, and uh, and Isaac of Nineveh as having a greater weight than say the beliefs of Tertullian and Isidore Seville and Augustine? Yes, they were better persons. They were they were richer, deeper theologians. They were better readers of Scripture. I say that even if Augustine. Towering genius, but his mistakes in scriptural exegesis, uh, quite often prompted by his inability to read Greek, are notorious. We know that his Paul is not the Paul of the New Testament. 
you know, his understanding of grace and nature have nothing to do with with what Paul believed. So, yeah, uh, you know, my only hope is if the Christian tradition is to be taken seriously, it's because the very best minds, the Gregories, uh, you know, the great you know, Gregory of Nyssa, Macrina, through to Bulgakov, are to be trusted, and and the lesser minds, you know. Uh, uh, the poor theologians, the the majority position is to be recognized for what it is, which is confused, contradictory, just a typical religion, uh, one in which institutional imperatives and psychological deficiencies and emotional defects of the human being uh, play a very large part. Well, there's, I mean, what I've noticed is there's just a lot of institutional uh, energy and traditional energy behind this incoherent picture of God. And then, so when people, when people come along, some of them, I think, feel like it's their job to defend this tradition that they've grown up in. So they, they just take, they just take it upon themselves to try to try to do that. Maybe in a sense. Let me say this, okay, because I, I haven't been particularly charitable about this one guy uh, because he's just been annoying me with 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 what I take to be especially bad arguments and especially uh, and especially truculent uh, um, ways of, of advancing them. But obviously, I'm not a person to judge others for that. I'll say this: they do, in a sense, pr- people like Rooney provide a real service, though. Because I don't believe, okay, you know, the the, the the fideistic Catholic who wants to believe what he's saying will take his arguments and say, yes, those are good arguments, you know. The, uh, you know the, that's what they want. But reflectively, I mean, a really reflective person who really pays attention to what he's saying should all at once or gradually recognize just how incoherent they are. I mean, the sort of, quotation you gave me about, you know, the damned being in the asylum, the wound in the heart of Christ. Okay. I think any person with a sound mind and, and an intact emotional nature and a functioning moral intelligence confronted by that will begin, even if he or she starts from the traditional position, will begin to see that there is something so ridiculous about this that maybe the whole picture has to be revisited maybe the, everything you know when you when when someone argues for the traditional view and does it as badly and as incoherently and really as morally unsettlingly as Rooney has done in a sense it's a wake up call i mean i noticed this over at eclectic orthodoxy when people were still arguing while i was still paying attention i have to admit i is that one by one you saw people say suddenly sort of Startled. Now, of course, most of them are already universalists, so, but suddenly startled at the sheer badness of the argument he was making, as if it had never occurred to them just how bad the argument was. So he's acting sincerely. Maybe he's actually very intelligent. It's just that because what he's defending is incoherent, he comes across as incoherent. In that sense, you know, God bless him. You know, would that everyone I have to argue with argued that badly? Or maybe I should say argued that fully. Maybe maybe the incoherence is evident simply because he just kept going on and on. 
making it more and more attempts to justify the unjustifiable, whatever the case, in a sense, there there came a point where I thought, you know, this was true when the arguments were going on. I thought, you know, I don't have to do any work here. Uh, at, at some point, the sheer lousiness of these arguments and also the sheer hideousness of the religion that comes out of it is self-evident. And maybe I should just be praying that one day Rooney himself wakes up to this, that by making these arguments, he'll come to see something will, you know, the light will go on and he'll realize that he's brainwashed, that he's defending something indefensible by means that simply don't work. And maybe on that day, he'll discover, I don't know, that Isaac of Nineveh was a <laughs> was was a better interpreter of Scripture than 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 he had realized to that point. Well, uh, the the last part of his sort of closing argument that I didn't get to is he says that uh, universalism cuts you off from the church and from the tradition. It's a diabolical attitude. It creates a sect and a cult. In yeah. the Christian church, it's fine to hope and pray for it, but insisting on this stuff is a recipe for disaster. And what 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 I thought was interesting about that is it it struck me as absolutely the the reverse that when I grew up around fundamentalism, it was a Protestant fundamentalism. I never I, I grew up around. I never joined it or really participated in it, but I listened to them, and and I came to think of it as being di- diabolical and cultish because it was. Telling yeah. me not to think through my moral intuitions. It was. Oh, it, yeah. I, I almost entirely abandoned Christianity as a young man. What's what what sort of rescued me were arguments that Vladimir Solovyev made in um, the treatise on God, manhood, or divine humanity, and I realized that I needed to <laughs> I needed to free myself from certain notions of what what was or was not. The, uh, the 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 orthodox view, but I mean, you know, if that's so, I, I, again, we can point to figures again and again in the tradition who've been universalist. Uh, you know, I don't remember Gregory of Nyssa being being condemned as a cult leader. I seem to remember that he was called the father of fathers and the pillar of orthodoxy by his church. Isaac of Nineveh is the most beloved figure in Eastern monastic tradition, really. Yeah. Other figures like Evagrius uh, got swept up in imperial politics and cut off, but it wasn't wasn't their universalism so much as the, that they were associated with something that the empire later had re- a monastic movement that the empire uh, found to be a thorn in its side. Um, but uh, you know, Bulgakov died in the peace of the church. Evdokimov did. You know, I mean, that's uh, Berdyaev did. I mean. I'm not quite sure what he thinks he's talking about. There has always been a far larger latitude. But then again, let's be honest, and I, I try to avoid the sectarian things, but I mean, this is part of the sickness of a kind of of one way of understanding Roman Catholicism that you find among Roman Catholics. Because it has such a, a large, how can I put it, such a ponderous panoply of, of dogmatic definitions and such a um, a stratified hierarchy of authority. People begin thinking in terms of their faith as just a purely propositional system dictated by hard and fast and clear statements. But that's just never that's never been how the faith has actually lived. It's never been actually even how the Catholic Church has quite presented itself. And as I say, 
uh, Coyle and others make a very good argument for the for the possibilities that lie in the shadowy minimalism of a lot of doctrinal statements. But you know, in the end, I, I again, who cares? I mean, I mean, this is just another statement of institutional anxiety. It doesn't deal with real questions. What he's saying there, if you think about it, is I've decided that this tradition is the true authoritative tradition. I've dedicated my life to it. I walk around in the Dominican garb as a result of it. Therefore, I daren't one oughtn't to think rationally. One shouldn't apply oneself. One shouldn't use one's reason. One shouldn't have the independence of mind to see if one finds morally intelligible teachings that clearly aren't morally intelligible. At the end of the day, he's just making a plea for intellectual and spiritual cowardice and calling it fidelity. And that too is something I've grown very tired of in recent years. Well, I do think we are in a time when there's a lot of, uh, I'm more familiar with the Protestant side of things, and there's a great number of people that are rethinking their faith. And I think all over Western Christendom, there are a lot of people that are asking these questions. I should point this out is, you know, I I think he, again and again, I have conversations with bishops, priests, people in orders, you know, in the Catholic world. I mean, not not in the Orthodox, but there too, obviously. Uh, Among those who don't, don't view what I'm saying as especially exotic or terrifying, the number who are universalists, but who feel that they're prevented institutionally from saying it, is quite substantial. And all I can say is I hope one day they'll they'll just start speaking more openly, because on the one hand, it's always nice to be told behind the scenes, well, I agree with you. Now, sometimes it's from guys who will say it openly, too. I want to point out there's a very nice uh, priest I know in the vicinity here who uh, is Catholic. He's a a wonderful champion of the poor and the oppressed, and he does the good work, and he's openly universalist, and he doesn't care who knows. But on the whole, I mean, they they say this to me, sub rosa, you know, behind the curtain. And on the one hand, I understand. I understand that they they have their positions in the church. They've been told how they should, you know, what they should say to the faithful. Another part of me says, though, that if you truly believe this, you know, is it anything less than service to the God you claim to believe in than to proclaim it? You know, at some point, I mean, I, you know, I, I know. But one Orthodox monk told me that that you know he has a while he's quite certain he's a great admirer of uh, Abba Porphyrius and Abba Siliwan, and he told me, of course, you know, of course, the Universalists are right. I just don't like to scandalize some of my less educated brethren in the in the you know in the monastery. You know, well, I don't know how scandalous is a, t- a teaching, is it? I don't know. But anyway, I, I do hope that more and more, as the generations shift, that there's greater boldness. Those who believe it, they must believe it because they have a deep conviction about the nature of God, and it seems very strange to remain silent on that of all issues. Well, um, I will just say that I I think that your scholarly contributions have helped me and many others to see that there is a necessary connection between creation's end 
and the moral character of God. And uh, so that's, uh, I mean, for me, when, when I first encountered your argument, it made me have to rethink some things, but that was a good, that was a good thing for me to rethink. And since that time, I feel like the clarity of the Christian faith has just come into absolute focus for me. And I've talked to a lot of other people who are starting to have these same types of feelings. And um, your ability to make these levels at the highest argument, at the, at the highest academic levels has been very, very, very helpful for folks like me and many others. So we thank you for that. Well, that's kind of you. And I apologize to, to, to Dominic for uh, uh, the tone of asperity. I, uh, in, in a sense, uh, after what is it? How long has the book been out? That book been out? Two, three, three four years. Four years, three years, four years. Let's just say it's been long enough that hearing the same arguments made over and over and over again uh, without actually getting down to the arguments the book makes sometimes does make me more impatient than it should. A failure of charity, no doubt. Well, on, uh, on a good note of charity then, we will end this conversation. I thank you very much, Dr. Hart, thank you. for your time today. Good to talk to you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.